0: This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell.
1: Hi, welcome to the AJ Bell Money Markets podcast. We're back after a summer break, ready to chat about all the important things affecting savers and investors. Joining me is Danny Hewson.
0: Hi, Dan. It's not exactly been a quiet summer, has it? And we've certainly got some really important things to talk about this week, starting with how the market reacted to Liz Truss's appointment as the new Prime Minister.
1: Now, Shares Magazine's news editor, Steve Fraser, is also on the podcast this week. He's going to be talking about the highest yielding stocks in the FTSE 100 index and whether these generous dividends are sustainable.
0: I'll be taking stock, no pun intended, of how markets have performed this year, identifying the shares that still have legs and the ones which have stumbled. I'll also be talking to Scottish Mortgages Deputy Manager Lawrence Burns about learning from past mistakes, as well as getting his thoughts on what's going on in markets right now.
1: Investment bank Berenberg has done a deep dive into various consumer stocks through the lens of a potential recession. So I'll be revealing the names which it thinks could be the winners or the losers.
0: And if you find it hard to access banking facilities near to your home, we've got some good news for you later in the show. It's nice to have good news. I don't know whether or not many people think that the appointment of Liz Truss as a new Prime Minister is good news or bad news. But Dan, you've been taking a look at how markets reacted.
1: Yeah, I mean, the pound hit a 37-year low versus the US dollar just before she was appointed. But um, actually, once we had confirmation that she's going to be the new Prime Minister, it started to creep back upwards just slightly. Uh, Many UK stocks also moved slightly higher as reports immediately came through that um, she's going to sort of unveil a big energy plan. Now we're recording this podcast on the Wednesday, I'm sure by the time you listen to it, this information might already be come out, but um, as it stands, it looks like household bills will, could potentially be subsidized by energy companies using government backed loans. And you know even small businesses might actually get some relief as well. So uh, you know, the market's been pricing in a tough recession. So shares in retailers in particular, been hit hard this year, but actually, if you if you find that freezing household energy charges means that this anticipated collapse on consumer spending might not be as bad as feared, investors are sort of been focusing on this potential scenario. So, um, the day that uh, Liz Truss was appointed as prime minister, we saw a big rally in sort of consumer facing companies. So, um, for example, names like Next was up four percent, Boohoo was up seven percent. Um, and the pub company, Mitchell's and Butler, was up nine percent. But actually, what happened was the the next day, some of these gains reversed. So um, there's still a lot of uncertainty out there. I guess next week's podcast will be able to give you a proper update um, based on what um, the prime minister has announced. Um, but you know, as it stands, of so, you know, if we see a sort of a cap on these on these bills for a while, it could potentially see the you know consumers start to spend a bit more again. Um, that could drive the economy. But actually, that would also see interest rates potentially keep going up as well. So um, there's sort of lots of ifs and buts and you know, having to balance things out. Um, but as it stands, it does look like you know, th- this sort of doomsday scenario, which people have been expecting, might not happen. But equally, you know, there's lots of negative things still bubbling away in the background.
0: Yeah, there's also concern that, of course, by helping households out, helping businesses out, putting more money back into the economy, that could just stoke inflation. And then, as you say, potentially lead to even faster and higher interest rate rises than we were perhaps expecting.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's you know, there's still a lot of uncertainty out there. And it's of course that's not very good for markets. So I think um anyone sort of looking at the, the reaction on the day of the you know the new Prime Minister announcement thinking it's all this great big turning point, I think we're not quite there yet. Um just it's probably worth being just slightly cautious. I and mean, certainly you know, just for the start of the year, we had you know pretty miserable first half. But now that we're back from our summer's break, I think some people might have looked at their portfolio and thought Actually, no. You know, since between June and August, things were looking quite good. But um, I think the big question is, Danny, what's actually happened? Has the markets managed to sustain this sort of recovery, or has it slipped back recently?
0: Uh, It's been an interesting one, and I've sort of gone through the the winners and the losers from the start of the year. And, you know, oil and gas companies really still flying high. So you've got energy topping the list, Shell's on there, BP, Harbour Energy all up significantly since the start of the year and all still up over the last months. Um, you've also got a number of defence, not defensive stocks, which are up um, still sustained, BAE Systems, the Kinetic Group, although they did see a drop over the last month. And of course, not all of them are, are doing quite so well. So we've got Babcock, Kemring, Megget only up just a touch. What has been interesting is commodities. We were talking a lot about commodities rallies at the beginning of the year. And, you know, the big mining stocks, they really dominated the FTSE 350 at the start of the year. But, you know, taking a look at how they performed year to date, we've got Glencore up 27% and up 2% over the last month. But that one is is one which is really sort of uh, an outlier because although Rio Tinto and Tofagasta did incredibly well at the start of the year, they've both been down over the last month. And for Expo, which is the world's third largest exporter of iron ore pellets, is in the top twenty fallers, and that of course is down to recession fears. Uh, and recession fears are certainly impacting investor sentiment um over the year what would you imagine the biggest faller is on the FTSE 350?
1: dam oh i'm putting you on the spot now that's a tough one steve what do you do you know that one
2: i don't know the answer to that i reckon it might be something like a persimmon the house builder
0: Persimmon is in there, but it was ASOS, uh, biggest faller, lost 71% in terms of share price year to date and 34% just in the month. And Aston Martin also in there as one of the big fallers. Um, But there are, you know, there's a bit of good news as well, because I was just taking a look at the last month, and there's been a lot of sort of activity in the mergers and acquisition space. And just before we went off, Dan, I know you were talking a lot about that, but we've got Micro Focus, uh, we've got Darktrace, we've got the Aviva Group, all linked potentially with buyouts, all topping the FTSE 350 gainers. But ASOS still down at the bottom of the FTSE 350 losers. But also in there, we've got Marshalls, you know, the construction and material business, which is down 31% over the month, which just really demonstrates that investors have been paying attention to outlooks. Because even though Marshalls had a pretty good update, it did warn that it could be impacted if we enter recession. And uh, I was also taking a look just at how things have been going um, over the year, just in terms of uh, other indices. So, taking a look at the FTSE 100. It is down 2% year-to-date, but almost 3% in a month. We've got the S&P, which is down 18% over the year-to-date, 6% in a month. And the NASDAQ down 26% year-to-date, 9% in a month, which just goes to show how nervous markets are. There are a huge number of geopolitical questions. And one big one, which came out today as we're recording this on Wednesday, which is how China's economy is going to perform. We saw a huge um, tail-off in the sort of growth of both imports and exports. And, of course, that is a hugely important marketplace. Tiny bit of good news from that, though, is that shipping costs have fallen because we often say, don't we, that the best cure for high prices is high prices themselves. Well, it looks like demand in Europe, in the United States and the UK has slipped back. So that has then led to uh, a, a fall in shipping costs, which hopefully, hopefully, you might uh, then see that that leading on to um, a, a fall in other costs as well. Um, it, it's fascinating time to look at. Uh, And I've been asked a lot recently about how I think that markets are going to perform over the next few months. And I think the only thing you can say with a degree of certainty is the volatility, which has really been the hallmark of 2022, is set to continue.
1: So a few months ago, we asked listeners which fund managers they'd like us to get on the podcast. Uh, quite a few of you requested the team running Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust. Now, this is one of the investments that's had pretty miserable time this year, but it still remains very popular with people. Um, so Danny recently caught up with Deputy Manager Lawrence Burns to discuss what's been keeping him busy and to see if there's any good news for suffering shareholders.
0: Lawrence, thank you so much uh, for joining us to talk about Scottish mortgage. Um, It has been a disappointing performance over this year so far, hasn't it?
3: So I think this is certainly, if we look back 10 months ago, not the 10 months we would have expected or hoped for. And I think we need to recognise that this was a discomforting period for Scottish mortgage shareholders. But yeah, having said that, Actually, as we go through the portfolio and we look at the investment uh, structural changes that we're invested in, the companies that we're backing, you know, really our enthusiasm remains sort of undimmed. Um, we're trying to back the entrepreneurs that are building the future of the economy. They're continuing to make progress. I think in that mission of doing it, um, you know, a lot of them continue to grow very rapidly, and we're excited by their long-term potential. You know, companies like Macar Libre that are revolutionizing uh, commerce and finance across Latin America, Moderna that are uh, revolutionizing healthcare through their mRNA technology platform, or SpaceX, which is lowering the cost of access uh, space and put satellites into orbit. All all of those uh, trends, I think, are progressing and sort of hopeful for the future. So yeah, I think this, this has been a difficult period in share price terms, but we actually see quite a lot of fundamental progress and you know, believe we're still aligned with a lot of the long-term structural changes that we're seeing in the world. Because you know, I think if you take a step back, it's still difficult to imagine a world where you know, we need materially fewer chips or AI chips, or we need fewer electric cars or fewer online services. Um, you know, I think we have to recognize this is a period where growth companies have fallen out of favor, but we still see that underlying progress coming through when we talk to our companies and we go out and see them.
0: There must be some investors who have questioned your decision to to stick by your investment decisions, your portfolio, because you know we have seen the share price drop 48% since its November high. Has there not been any point where you have thought, actually, maybe we do need to, to shift our focus?
3: So I think we've always been open about we're never going to get everything right we will always make mistakes. Um, And I think that's part of investing of trying to own those very small number of big winners that can deliver returns that you're going to own a a number of things on the way that don't work out. So so I think this is in no way saying that every decision is right. And we'll uh, have made mistakes along that way. And we'll try and learn and improve for them uh, on behalf of our shareholders. But I think what we're not doing is changing our core philosophy where we think our edge comes from on behalf of shareholders. So, We continue to be focused on investing and finding the outliers of tomorrow. We continue to be focused on growth companies and we continue to be focused on investing only on a long term time horizon. And I think in periods such as these where, as as you rightly said, you you see large share price falls, you see lots of pressure, you see um, a degree of questioning. It's much harder to be long term. But at the same time, I think it's much more valuable and even more of a differentiator. So the philosophy and the process stays the same. But obviously, you're always learning and adapting to the environment that you're investing in as well.
0: Realistically, how do you perfect, expect stocks to perform over the next six months, bearing in mind some of the issues that we've seen in terms of inflation and interest rate rises? when nowhere near the end of that cycle.
3: So I think, I think these things are always difficult to predict. I'd always tend to be wary of people that think they have a perfect crystal ball of macroeconomics, particularly over the next six to 12 months. Um, And I think the first thing is taking a step back of of what we're trying to do. What we're trying to do is maximize returns for our shareholders of periods of five and 10 years. And so that's why we've we've tried to say that, you know, we think we align well with investors and savers when they're able to invest in us for that same time period. Um, We also don't think we have much insight into what happens over the next six to 10 months. But yeah, I I don't think things are um, inevitable. You've seen. you yeah, higher rates fee through into um, a negative impact on equity valuations um you could see a situation where actually um, those expectations continue to go up and that could continue to be ahead when you could see expectations come down in terms of a recession or resolution to russia and ukraine i think there are lots of different options of how things could play out i think our role is again we're, we're trying to back the entrepreneurs and the founders that are building the companies of the future that are better ways of doing things that are structural drivers that will you know, really a bet on radical innovation um, that should deliver long term value, you know, irrespective of the macroeconomics. But I think it's impossible to say, you know, is that value recognised in the next month, the next six months or so on? I, th- I think that that would be a, a difficult thing to say.
0: But it would be fair to say that for people looking at their investment and, and thinking about, you know, the next couple of months, that we might not have seen the end of the bad news.
3: So, so again, I think we need to be, be clear and open. Um, no one has a crystal ball. Is it, is it possible things get a bit worse before they get better? That, that's completely possible. Um, I don't think we're being consistent with our time horizon if we start saying that we, we, we what we think is going to happen in the next few months. I think what I would say is that, as you I know, said in the earlier comments, we still think uh, we're invested in some really interesting, exciting, long-term trends. We still see progress along those lines. Um, but we're now also investing in an environment where growth has been materially out of favour. Could it fall more out of favour? Yes, but I think if you're able to back uh, things and people you believe in when they're out of favour, that that's, tends not to be the worst time to do so.
0: We had a, a question in from a Money and Markets listener, Peter Gower, who wondered, is Scottish mortgage actually a high-risk investment vehicle?
3: So, so I, I think, again, you know, we, we talked a bit about the time horizon. So I think that that needs to be aligned. I think the other one is that we wouldn't be going and advocating for someone to have their entire savings within Scottish Mall, which I think it makes a lot of sense as part of someone's savings is that better long-term change. Um, and I think within that, it makes, um, you know, a, a lot of sense and context. But as we sort of look at the portfolio, you know, we have a number of companies, as I said, that continue to grow rapidly, um, that are producing prodigious free cash flows. Um, yeah, you know, I, I think the risk is investing in the economy of the past more than it is investing in the economy of the future.
0: Just let's talk about one of your biggest holdings. You mentioned it earlier, Moderna. Why has it performed so poorly on the stock market this year?
3: Yeah, I, I think that's a really interesting one, because if we go back to interest rates, inflation or a dislike of concepts or lack of profitability, you know, Moderna is actually producing many, many billions of dollars of free cash flow um, in near term earnings that are quite high. It's on a very low P.E., four or five times earnings. Um, so, so why is it? I think the problem the market is dealing with is that the immediate COVID revenues are very large and it's permanently playing the game of, of how do these trail off and fade over time. Um, but I think our difference has been that that sort of misses part of the point, which is that mRNA technology, Moderna wasn't built to solve COVID. It just happened that this technology platform was really effective and really efficient at dealing with uh, diseases and it pivoted to help us solve the COVID crisis. And so for us, a lot of the value is in, well, what else can it do? And most of their pipeline of drug trials has nothing to do with COVID. Um, you know, it has things like HIV, Zika, um, you know, in the long run, cancer, um, flu vaccines, and so on. And so for us, it's that long term potential that we think that the the market isn't sort of properly looking at. And is ins- and so we, we think it's been unfairly punished. And, and that's why it's one of our large just holdings of enough trust at the moment.
0: While we're talking about COVID, we've got to talk about China. Um, clearly, its economy is sluggish at best. There is an awful lot that the Chinese state is, is doing at the moment to try and prop up the economy. There will be a number of investors shying away from Asian markets at the moment. Do you still see a value there?
3: So, so yeah, you know, China is... The second largest economy in the world, um, and at some point, it's likely to be the largest economy. We continue to see an awful lot of business innovation and ambition from its corporate leaders. Um, so I, I don't think China is somewhere where one can sort of write it off completely. Um, I think if nothing else, there's quite a lot to learn from talking to businesses and seeing the business model innovation there. But I, I do think at the same time, um, you know, for some of the sectors of the economy, the regulatory intervention has given us pause. I think, you know, going back to what I said before, some things where we see that, you know, we've made a degree of mistake, was I think we could have been quicker to realise some of the implications of that regulatory intervention. But I think it's important not to see China in binary terms, that, you know, is there still the possibility to invest in fast-growing transformative companies in China? Yes. But I think there are more challenges and risks now that we see than we would have perceived, you know, 24 months ago. So
0: hindsight is a wonderful thing. But you've clearly been learning lessons. What kind of questions are you asking businesses now before you invest in them or to probe whether or not you continue the investment?
3: Yes, so I think that there are a range of multitude of questions. Um, I think we're trying to understand different things. Do they see a transformative opportunity? Is there the ability for this company to be five or 10 times larger? What are the external forces that are pushing them and making that possible? What are the changes in the world that they're either driving or benefiting from You know, to try and sketch out that opportunity? You know, As they scale, does their competitive advantage stay the same or does it actually increase? Because I think some of the companies that have been Really interesting investments have been those where actually as it scales and as it grows, its competitive advantage becomes greater, it becomes more unfair, its position. Um, and then I think the other one that's always very important to us is, is management. Um, we want to believe that the company is going to be managed in a genuine long-term way. Um, you know, I spend a fair amount of time engaging with companies and checking that they're not being almost indoctrinated by the financial markets to immediately show profits. Because the financial markets loves it when you can have a a quarter that has earnings that are going up. But if you've got a very large opportunity, it actually makes more sense quite often to invest in that opportunity to build market share, to improve your position, to maximise that long-term value for your investors. And so I I think part of it, particularly in these conditions, is just checking that there's the right path between you don't want companies to get caught short in terms of balance sheet, but you also don't want them to push profitability too far um, to appease markets in this environment. Because... Yeah, our advantage, I think, of being long-term is strongest um, in a difficult environment. But I think that's also true for companies, as they can invest counter-cyclically and actually take advantage of some of the turmoil that we see in the markets today.
0: Have there been any companies which have surprised you, either on the upside or the opposite?
3: Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think there's a-, a range of things. Yeah things never uh, play out exactly as you expected. So, so let, let's start with things that are on, on the downside of Surprised. Um, yeah. yeah. I think it's been surprising that Netflix have found adding subscribers quite as difficult. Um, you know, we knew that the U S was a market where they have gone on to dominate quite sufficiently, but we thought that there was a, a much larger pool of potential users globally that would continue to sustain growth for a very long time. And I think management's own comments around that have been interesting to us. Um, so, so that in itself, I think is, is raising some interesting questions to think through about the remaining opportunity for them o- on the positive side. Um, you know, as I said before there are lots of our companies that continue to grow at really quite fast rates um, you know Tesla is growing revenues around 40 percent year-on-year um, Its economics in terms of its car manufacturing business of sort of uh, a, a sort of industry leading automotive margins um You know, 30 percent gross margins are much higher than I think we would have anticipated. Um, Libre's ability, um, even pre-pandemic, to be growing revenues in U.S. dollars 50 percent year on year, um, as of of this quarter, sorry, last quarter, I should say, I think is really impressive, as is the move that they've been able to make into financial services. So, you know, I think as everyone investing, there's a number of things that are surprising us, um, but it's certainly not all doom and gloom.
0: What about chip makers? Because we've had a number of warnings over the, the last reporting period from chip makers. And I think some investors have been caught out, have been surprised by the the change in fortunes from a point where, you know, there simply weren't enough chips around. And everyone thought, right, we need a massive influx to to suddenly them saying, you know, in t- certainly in terms of gaming, uh, we've got too many.
3: Yeah, I I think we need to be cognizant that the semiconductor industry has traditionally been a cyclical industry. Um, And, you know, I think the the base rate expectation is that that continues. But I I think it's always important not to lose sight of the biggest bigger picture. So if you go back in time in Bailey Gifford, one of the reasons we were slower than we should have been to own ASML, the Dutch chip maker that does lithography, you know, was because we kept getting caught up of well, where are we in the cycle and trying to permanently time that cycle perfectly, whereas actually I think the the innovation that's allowed us to own it and, and own it relatively well over the period of time is saying well, it's going to be cyclical. But this is a long-term structural trend where society will continue to need a greater number of chips over the next five to 10 years. So we have the ability to make some judgments if we think we might be at the top of the cycle or the bottom of the cycle. But I think the key thing is that um, you're going to need an exponentially larger number of computing chips into the future. And I think that's what underpins their very... um, they're very sort of long-term investment case. And, and you can see the importance even today of CHIPS with, um, you know, it, it's a geopolitical tool as much as anything. These are the the, the core sort of lifeblood of economies. Um, you know, these are the things that really count, I think, in the 21st century is, is access and the ability to have semiconductor capabilities.
0: Has there been one geopolitical event over the last two years, you think, that has really been the one that stands out in terms of, the impact on the companies that you invest in? I think
3: one of the big changes has been, yeah. You know, I think if you think of American policy um, post the Soviet Union, it was a belief that economic openness, economic integration and prosperity led people to be closer to the Western model over time. It led to political reform. Um, I think the big change that I'm sort of seeing is that I think America has decided that um, some of those countries it was hoping would converge more towards its political model have not done so, but instead have become peer-to-peer competitors that are challenging them um, in the economic sphere, military sphere, sphere, um, the ideological one and technological one. And I think that friction between America and China looks like it's here to stay. And I think that will define quite a lot of how the 21st century ends up looking
0: you fielded a lot of questions from investors over the last months looking at performance, thinking about future performance. Do you find for the most part that shareholders do understand the trajectory that you're talking about? They do understand that as an investment, this is a long-term investment.
3: I think, I think the, the answer to that is we, we hope so. We hope in the good years we've talked about, Volatility—that there'll be bad periods—that um, it, it's wrong to judge us on an exceptionally good year. Um, so that some of those things have resonated over time. At the same time, I don't—I think it would be wrong to pretend that this isn't a discomforting period, a period that will challenge people's conviction and faith. And I think we need to. You know, keep being open with shareholders, keep talking about what we're doing, um, a little bit like we've done today, sort of reassuring that you know, the philosophy remains the same. We're not trying to massively um, change all the things that we've talked to you about for the last five or 10 years. We're investing in the same way um, and talk to them both about the opportunities and the challenges that we're seeing. Um, and and ho- hopefully, you know, you have shareholders that, that sort of um, listen and are willing to give you a degree of faith if, if they continue to like what they hear. <laughs>
0: Lawrence, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Lawrence Byrne, Deputy Manager of Scottish Mortgage. So I think
1: one of the key things to consider with Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust is that you've got to be incredibly patient and understand it's a high risk investment. And I think this year's big drop in the share price has provided this wake up call that perhaps it's not really suitable for everyone. What do you think, Steve?
2: Uh, it's, it's certainly not suitable for everyone, Dan. Um, I mean, it's very high high risk, um, and it's very long term growth. Um, and this really is the conviction strategy that, that James Anderson put in place with uh, Scottish Mortgage, um, and, he, and he retired, of course, earlier this year, um, I think in April. Um, so it'd be interesting. I wonder if his retirement has maybe um, caused a natural pause for investors to to, to stop and reflect and see if they feel that the long term is going to produce the kind of returns that that the past has delivered. Um, It will be very interesting to see whether or not, you know, Tom Slater and Lawrence Burns, um, they want to stick to the the same knitting um, using uh, uh, um, academic research as their their, their main lever. Can they discover the new Tesla or or Amazon or Alibaba? Um, I, I guess it's a case of wait and see.
0: Yeah, and returns, of course, are one of the main reasons that people are attracted to the stock market because of the superior income you can get versus cash in the bank. But with interest rates now going up, can stocks and shares still trump savings accounts, down?
1: This is really interesting because, you know, rising interest rates are making cash savings accounts much more attractive. And we're actually at the point where the best buy cash rate is on a par with the yield that you get from the FTSE 100 stock index. So you can get 3.5% from SmartSave if you lock that money away for two years. The FTSE 100 is yielding 3.6%. So I think obviously the risk of going into a two-year fixed-rate cash account is that interest rates keep going up. Actually, you might have got a better deal if you'd waited a bit. But if, if you bought a FTSE 100 tracker fund – you're taking on a lot of extra risk because you've got money in the stock market, and you know who knows what the extra reward would be. So, I wonder if more people are now going to perhaps step away from the lower yielding stock that we see in the FTSE 100, um, and then actually much more focus on on the sort of the, the high yielding one. So, Steve's here, and he's going to talk about. The, the, the top yielding stocks in the FTSE 100. Just to give you an idea of what you can get.
2: Yeah, thanks, Dan. It's I mean it's, it's been a fascinating space to watch. And going back to Danny's earlier point about some of the big fallers in the FTSE 100. Of course, um, as share prices fall, prospective yields go up, and, and boy, have they gone up. Um, we've got something like four or five FTSE 100 companies that are promising to, to, to um, uh, yield. Double digits. Now that's pretty incredible when you consider that the average in the FTSE one hundred is about four point two percent. So if you look at the top one, it's it's Persimmon, the house builder, uh, who I guess had had a pretty rough time of it simply because its yield is, is so high. And and as Danny had mentioned earlier, there's so many factors going on in the economy. Um, what level of, of confidence can one really have in the new house build um, industry and with mortgage rates potentially going to go up, um, lending criteria potentially going to tighten. Um, so you can see the market is, is is leaning away from house builders in general. Um, Simmons on a 15.8% dividend yield. I mean, it's eye-watering. Um, Barrett Development's 9.6%. Taylor Wimpey, 9%. These are some of the biggest house builders um, on the stock market and in the country. Um, and it makes you wonder whether or not um, the tightening economy is really going to upset that apple cart, and those forecast yields will simply not prove to be sustainable. Uh, that's the big question that all investors need to ask. I, I found it interesting also looking through some of the others, and again, um, talking about China's economic cycle. So, of course, the mining companies have all taken a bit of a beating very recently that had a pretty good year up until six weeks ago or so, but they've all come under a lot of pressure now because your, your aluminium, your steel, your, your iron ore, all of these kind of commodities um, are gobbled up in huge quantities by the Chinese economy. If the Chinese economy starts to really sag, of course, there's going to be fewer people to, to buy those commodities. So uh, big yielders like Rio Tinto, Glencore, um, uh, Anglo-American, all yielding over 7.5%, which, again, is, is pretty staggering. And what you have to do is look forward to see what the market is forecasting. Are they sustainable rates? Now, with some analysts, they are looking at some of these companies and saying they're not sustainable, but they might be reasonably okay. They've got big balance sheets, lots of cash on the balance sheet. They can afford to um, supplement their dividends with cash resources to 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 steady the ship, if you like, through tougher times. Um, but it's really a case of looking forward and seeing what the kind of forecasts are. And um, you can get forecast information from a few places, but it's quite hard. They tend to be um, pay for services. Uh, Market Screen is one of the few websites uh, where you can get forecast uh, dividend information um, for free as it stands anyway. Um, uh, I, also, it's worth talking about NatWest as well. and Banks have always been really popular with income seekers. Um, NatWest is currently yielding around 12%. Now, that seems incredible, but when you look at their most recent figures, they, they knocked, knocked them out of the park. I mean, they, they, they deliver something like 1.5 billion of operating profit versus 1 billion expected. Um, that might lead you to believe that that 12% dividend yield is extremely safe. Hang on, though. That only applies to 2022's payout. So we're already nine months of the year through 2022. Um, We've got to really look at 2023. And already analysts are looking at massive reductions in future payouts. Um, I think when I was checking the numbers, uh, the consensus was for the the, um, dividend payout in 23 to roughly halve. Now, what that does to the yield is, of course, it halves the yield. Um, So down to about 6%, which is probably about where you might expect banks to typically sit in terms of income yield. So you really have to be a bit cautious with these headline figures. A, are they sustainable in terms of payouts? And B, look forward beyond the current year to see what analysts are already factoring in.
1: Yeah, I think it's true. I mean, obviously with NatWest, you've got um, the share price has been falling for a while, isn't it? So it's while you may look at some of these high yielding dividends and get think, okay even even if they cut their dividend by half, you know that's still fine for me. You just have to always factor in that you know do you also want to own a share price, a, a company whose share price is falling? so um, it definitely it's, this is a great example of how as an investor, do a bit of research before you actually buy.
2: absolutely some. Dan and, and and it's really interesting when you looked at the most recent figures of NatWest, I mean, a lot of their outperformance came because mortgage lending was so much better than anticipated. Now, of course, we've already mentioned um, the demand for new ho- new homes or, or first-time buyers to get on the ladder is likely to to feel the pinch, given the fact that you know your cost of living has gone through the roof and the gas price is likely to the gas, electric price is to, to to go up again next month. So, it, it it's not surprising perhaps that analysts are taking a very conservative view in terms of what they might be able to pay next year.
1: I think with dividends, it's also worth following some golden rules. You must understand that they're not guaranteed payments. That you know, these companies can can sort of make a statement, and say we're going to pay X amount, but they can change their mind uh, straight afterwards. And we saw this during the pandemic. There was a few examples of companies that said actually we, re- we had to rethink it, and we're not sure we can really afford to be paying that out now. Um, another thing to consider is that once they've announced these dividends, you quite often have to wait a few months before you actually get that money in your bank. So if you're, if you're looking for investments as a source of income um, and trying to plan that into your sort of your monthly budgeting, um, just be aware that that, that money does not sort of automatically go in as soon as they've announced it. Um, another thing to think about is tax as well. So if you hold shares in an ISA or, or a SIP, you don't pay any tax on dividends, but if you're if you're using them in a, in a dealing account, you get an allowance which is two thousand pounds worth of dividends payments in a year. But after that, you then have to sort of pay different uh rate of tax based on your income tax band. So, basic tax rates, uh, tax, you know, basic rate taxpayers will pay 8.75 percent, higher rate will pay 33.75, an additional rate you pay 39.35 percent. So, um, you know, the golden rule is really to you know, if you can put those income. Uh, investments into an ISA or a SIP, where you can obviously with with SIPs, you've got to be aware that um, there's restrictions on when you can actually withdraw it, uh, and even with types of ISAs, with you know if you've got a lifetime ISA, you, you know, you've got to understand the rules. You can't just freely take that money out.
2: Just just another point, Dan, I think is worth making about about income is you know by putting all your money into into a very few, a basket of very few stocks, um, is, is can be very high risk because of the, the reason Dan has just suggested. Um, which is why income funds can be um, a great way to spread that risk, and and what investment trusts have over over OICS is ultimately they can use surplus cash held on the balance sheet from from times when they've earned better than expected to supplement their their payouts. So you potentially will get a portfolio of of anything, I don't know, 40, 50, maybe 100 different income stocks that hopefully any cuts that come to dividends um, get evened out by companies that um, are able to pay a bit more than is perhaps expected.
0: Yeah, Steve, spreading the risk, really important, as you say. And um, I was taking a look earlier, talking about the FTSE 350, and only 46 of the 350 had actually made positive gains over the last month, just in terms of share price. But one of those was Carnival Cruises. And this next story might just have a little something to do with it although I have to say it needs to be taken with a huge pinch of salt if you read the Sunday papers you might have spotted something in the mail on Sunday saying it was almost cheaper to go on an all-inclusive cruise than it was to stay at home in the UK now that sounds great because I'm thinking yeah (laughs) let's go (laughs) on holiday have you ever been on a cruise Dan?
1: Uh, no, I haven't. Not
0: How about yet. you, Steve?
2: No, no, I've avoided that.
0: <laughs> no, I haven't. Uh, and I know that we hear a lot that it is sort of something that maybe older people will go and do. And my mum has been on a cruise and she absolutely loved it. Uh, and clearly, this is one sort of target market that cruise liners are brilliant at serving. But the Mail on Sunday ran some numbers. So it found that a three-week cruise before Christmas, including flights, Valencia to Dubai, came in at £775 per person for two. And of course, you know, you get everything in, don't you? And also, a 16-night cruise to the Canaries came in at £1,299 per person. Now, they then compared that with the latest research about um, an average monthly household budget based on 2.4 people. They said it came in at £2,548. Now, that doesn't take into account the current rise in food and energy bills. So, you know, you might be thinking, happy days, this sounds great. But, of course, you know, small print all yeah. those bills are still waiting for you when you get home. So it might sound like fantastic news, but there are caveats, as with everything.
2: Oh, you spoil, spoil! Yeah, <laughs> I,
0: I, I mean, this, is where, this
2: is where Airbnb can come in, surely. <laughs> so,
1: I, I mean, sadly, I think a lot of people won't be turning their dream of a cruise into reality anytime soon, judging by some new figures out from PwC. So, um, you know, earlier in the podcast, I I said that retailers and sort of pub companies had bounced back on the stock market because people are thinking perhaps um, we won't be cutting back on our spending to some extreme measures, but, but actually, um, even if energy bills are frozen, the cost of living is still incredibly high for lots of people. So, PwC has sort of found that UK workers are facing an average £2,000 cut to real wages by the end of this year, while inflation could peak next year at 17%. So clearly, that puts us in a position for recession. We could see that as early as this year. Economic growth is expected to slow down incredibly much over the next couple of years. And, you know, it's no wonder if you add all these things up that people are starting to be very cautious about consumer facing stocks. So um, talked about ASOS being one of the worst performers on the market. Well, you know, lots of these retailers have already pricing in bad news. Uh, and investment bank Berenberg has been looking at this space and sort of trying to just make sense of what's going on. You know, it sort of make the point that actually consumer spending has been pretty resilient so far. You know, we've had accumulated savings. Um, there's been a recovery in people travelling around the world. Um, also, lots of pent-up demand for certain things like fashion, um, and, and it's sort of created this sort of false sense of security uh, about the resilience and the direction of consumer spending. But um, Berenberg believes that these tailwinds are going to fade, and uh, therefore it believes the cost of living crisis, the worst of it, is still to come. So, what does that mean for investors in this space? In Berenberg's view. The key stock to avoid is H&M. So it's sort of saying that it's it thinks this is the company's most at risk from fashion retailers from a recession. It's not a price leader. So if you think about people, if they're in hard times that they'll perhaps trade down to cheaper items, well, h H&M and is perhaps not the place that they're going to be shopping. It's Also, it's got lots of fixed costs. So if, if you think that the revenue might fall if, if H&M has to slash its prices, uh, costs stay the same. Uh, that means under something called operational gearing that it's it's profits going to take a really big hit um so something to you know in berenberg's uh view is something to be you know aware of if you, if you perhaps if you're looking at those new shares in H&M. it's becoming a lot more cautious on adidas thinks there's lots of unknowns uh around that sort of company and instead it thinks that the one that stands out could actually you know do a lot better than people think is jd sports um now loads of bad news already priced into that one but actually this this company's really important strategic partner for for many of these big sportswear brands it's got pricing power so it will just pass on any extra costs um, to the customer i guess the key question is you know if there is a recession are we all still going to be able to afford to go and buy you know smart trainers
2: i can't afford to go to jd sports as it is there. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah i mean it, it it's uh, you know there's a certain certain type of customer who likes to collect trainers don't they and um, I guess if you're perhaps if you you know if you're it's customer base is younger. If you're living at home, perhaps you don't directly have to take on these extra bills. So, you know, if you're if you're sort of in your early twenties and you have got a job, maybe you can still go out and buy the stuff. But um the markets took the view that you know, things are looking terrible, but actually, I think the last few statements they, the companies
2: put out have been pretty, pretty reassuring, haven't they? Yeah, I think our colleague James Crux has, has made a point about them being um, performing better than expected. Uh, not necessarily performing well, but certainly better than expected. I mean, I've always taken the view though that, that, um, that brands like Nike and Adidas and others are increasingly looking to reach out direct to consumers. So I wonder, longer term, it might happen in the next twelve or eighteen months, but longer term, I wonder about. Um, what the relationships are going to be like for a JD Sports. We have the exclusivity um, to reach out to the, to the consumer base. I mean, I don't know the answer to that, but it's certainly a, a threat I would perceive that the market might be looking at over a five or six-year period.
0: And that, of course, could mean that parents like me, who have teenagers who are asking for ridiculously priced trainers for Christmas, may end up paying more. Um... No
3: deals, yeah. <laughs>
0: is not great but there we go but at least if I am going to be paying more, I am going to be able to get the cash out in order to do it, because there is some potential good news for people who have limited access to banking facilities where they live. And I live in the sticks in Yorkshire. And uh, let me say it is tricky sometimes trying to find uh, a hole in the wall if you need cash. And people still do need cash. People still do need particularly businesses, you know, to, to bank checks, to to get cash in order to be able to, give change to people uh, and uh, and also it, it now at the moment a lot of people are turning to cash because they find it easier to budget with but we've been seeing the number of bank branches consistently falling and um there were 736 branch closures in 2021 and there are some places now where you you just don't have facilities. And the idea was that there would be these banking hubs. They could be anywhere, but basically, all the different banks would get together and provide this sort of hub where you could access your uh, accounts, deposit cash and checks. D- didn't matter which bank you belong to, you would be able to go into one of these. But this. Rollout really was stalled, but the Financial Conduct Authority says that they expect perms now to open these hubs as a priority. Thirteen more have been earmarked. So potentially, if you have really struggled over the last couple of years to try and find banking facilities, you might now start to see a momentum, a pickup of pace where these hubs suddenly appear on the high street.
1: That's that has to be good news, isn't it? We, we've talked before on the podcast about the, the struggles of people trying to get access to banks. The local branches are shutting down. So I think this is good. And let's hope that it's, there's some momentum behind it. And we get it's not just 13 that are opening. It's 30. It's 100. let So hopefully that's see.
2: And it makes sense for the banks as well, doesn't it? Because, I mean, you can go to even a small town high street might have an HSBC, might have a Barclays, it might have a Santander, um, multiple bank branches. Um, and you think if they can just combine their costs, it makes absolute sense. Um, and they just have reps from all the banks in the, in the one shop front.
1: Absolutely. So that's all from us this week. Don't miss next week's podcast, where we'll be chatting to an expert about how to invest in companies involved in cyber security. So until then, thank you very much for listening. Catch you next time
0: Thank <music> you.